Welcome to PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. I'm John Bernstein, Regional President of PNC Bank in New England, alongside my co-host, Carolyn Jones, publisher of the Boston Business Journal. Thanks, John. Great to be with you on PNC C-Speak. Each podcast features local executives talking about relevant and timely business topics. This knowledge sharing platform showcases leaders with forward thinking approaches that disrupt the status quo and cause us to think differently. Paula, welcome. It's wonderful to see you. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with both of you. Great. We'd love to start by introducing you to our listeners. Uh, Maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself, perhaps uh, using what are three words that colleagues would use to describe you? That's an interesting one. You know, maybe I would start with inclusive, collaborative, and empathetic. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and as I like to say, it was not the, shall we say, the the hot, really fabulous place to live it is today. Um, It was kind of a gritty city that um, I love, and I loved and still love, but uh, really provided a, a pretty solid foundation. I'm a product of public schools in New York, and then came to Harvard for my undergraduate and both my graduate programs in medicine and in public health, and then spent uh, really most of my life in academic medicine at Brigham and Women's uh, Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And I'm a cardiologist, but really spent the majority of my career as a clinical scientist, I'm a clinical epidemiologist, really focused on women's health. So how do we basically understand sex and gender differences in health and disease? to do the right science so that we can actually develop the right foundation to get the right treatment for women. And how do we then translate that into uh, clinical care? And, you know, as I think about that work, as well as my work in public health, there was a very significant global health piece to the women's health work, as well as my work chairing the Boston Public Health Commission through a number of crises But I think as I've moved to higher ed, the through line really has been this focus on the development of women, the health and well-being of women. How do we achieve equity in this world, uh, both from a health perspective, but from an educational and opportunity perspective for women? So I think that's really been the trajectory. And, you know, although academic medicine is clearly a different world than more traditional higher ed, It is academia nonetheless with those three pillars, you know, of really strong science and research and uh, teaching. Uh, And of course, in in medicine, there's the clinical care uh, piece. Your career has been impressive, right? Both in academic medicine, in public health, and now in higher education. And Paul, I'd love to hear about how your career trajectory and your experiences have informed the work you're taking on today at Wellesley when you are looked at by young people, when you are viewed as successful, there is some notion that you got there through a straight line, that this was always in the plans and that in some way you went from Brooklyn to Harvard Medical School to Wellesley without many knocks, without failures. And I think we have to actively dispel those notions. One of the things I do is I actively share failures. I actively share when I didn't get a job or when something didn't work out. 
And we all have not just one, we've got many stories. But I think young people don't know that. And we do have to share that with young people. The other thing, not so much with students, but I do think with faculty and staff, as we work with people in small groups, also acknowledging the totality of their lives, and I think this has become critically important in the pandemic, is important. People are not working with us or for us without a context. And we have to acknowledge that, embrace it in many different ways. And from the top, acknowledging that and understanding, even with our leaders, our senior leadership teams, how we approach them and our own leadership in embracing their lives is critically important. You know, Paula, the past two years have been unlike anything that you may have seen in higher education previously. What have been the pain points for you in the industry and what have been the opportunities? We were all, everybody in every industry was struggling to really navigate what was a somewhat unprecedented situation, you know, other than 1918. And I think that the opportunities and the challenges really in in some ways came in a parallel way. So for example, we had to quickly move to a remote teaching platform. Now we had had a foundation in that in some of the work we had done over the past several years. So we had a lot of the foundational pieces, but that had to be then quickly scaled up both from a technology standpoint, but also from the faculty student standpoint, changing curricula, really, really doing that quickly. So what is the silver lining in that? With that work, we also recognized how quickly we could actually adapt, how quickly we could adopt, and that we could change in a way that I think we would not have necessarily imagined without the pandemic. So the challenge, but the opportunity. Without a doubt, some of the struggles that we've seen students, faculty, and staff live with, those are real challenges. And what again, what I would say, those were acute insults on top of chronic problems. In our country, we've not invested in people infrastructure. We've not invested in childcare. We haven't invested appropriately in preschool education. The inequities in the workforce are enormous. And then you put an insult on top of that and you really get things falling apart. So I think that that experience for us was uh, quite an intense one. Another area of real concern is the mental health, not only of faculty and staff, but of our students. You probably know that, you know, mental health of young people these days is something that, that we, we see significant rates of depression and anxiety. As you can imagine, you now are thrown into a situation where you're isolated and also don't necessarily have the equalizing foundation of a residential campus because we are a residential campus. You pull all of that away and again, a, a safety net infrastructure falls apart. So we had to pretty quickly figure out how we were going to support our students, whether they were here on campus. And we did have half of our students, once we came back in the fall, half of our students here all year, uh, different groups of students. And how are we really going to support our faculty and staff? We provided 
grants for particularly for junior faculty that were flexible that could help them catch up with regard to uh, their academics but it's not perfect and what it really says to me is it doubles down on my commitment on our commitment particularly as the leading women's college really in the world to working to advance women's equity, equality, and also how do we develop the policies and practices that support women and where we where they're going and it's time. So just talking a little bit more about the pandemic and maybe shifting more to you personally, how has the pandemic influenced or perhaps shifted how you lead? The pandemic has really highlighted again the need for collaborative, inclusive leadership and leadership that's also clear, clear about the data and clear about direction. In a crisis, you need to have the right people at the table to hear the right voices. But at the end of the day, decisions need to be made and they need to be made quickly. And you have to understand which decisions are more urgent than others and where you're gonna put a stake in the ground with imperfect information. And you know, I would say that that's always been part of my leadership style, but when you're in a pandemic, it just deepens the need to really put in motion that model of leadership. And that's a place where I would say my career in academic medicine, where, where we are frequently making decisions with imperfect information, where we are really thinking about evidence on a consistent basis between academic medicine and larger public health. Those are strategies that that we use all the time. So I would say that those are that those are areas that uh, were deepened for me during the pandemic. Throughout your career, what is some of the best advice that you've been given from leaders who you work with? I would say that some of the best advice is really that leadership is not a singular journey. That, you know, leaders aren't created out of thin air. They are created out of their environments. They're created with learning, with peer relationships, with all types of mentors. And I do think that the advice around how to build a bench of mentors, advisors, is really one that began for me truly in my college years. And one thing that I I carry on mainly to my students, but also to our faculty in particular and staff, is this notion that mentors are not this, you know, one singular magical person who holds the keys to your future, but that relationships, peer relationships are critically important, that there are ways that you need to have models for yourself of people who look like you. I'm a black woman. It's critically important that I have other black professionals, both women and men, who provide a real source of support and just a source of sounding board information. And so that multidimensional quality of mentoring as you move through your career advisors is critically important. And it's one that, you know, I have passed on in the way that we support 
our students, faculty, and staff in terms of how we support their peer groups, how we really work with our students for them to understand the answers are are not just in your faculty, that it's part of the learning together and so much more. And then to make sure that young people know that making time for others is critically important, right? Because you have to pass it on. You have focused so much of your uh, career and some of you and your work on creating the conditions that allow women to thrive. And we'd love for you to share maybe a little bit more of your thoughts on that topic and, and talk a little bit about what's been at the core of developing those strategies. At the core of our work at Wellesley is this notion of inclusive excellence, which is how do we, number one, create an enormously diverse student body, but also workforce, faculty and staff, and how do we retain them? And in doing that, we really have to create an environment where that diversity is embraced. It isn't just about the numbers. I think that that's, you know, in the era of George Floyd and a lot of uh, racial reckoning, that's become very clear. But I would say it's been part of the work we have been doing here at Wellesley and has been part of really our DNA, shall we say. And what does that mean? One, it means that we do have to pay attention to creating a more diverse workforce because if you don't have the voices at the table, then you are really not excellent. I mean, I think we have to redefine excellence and that's why we use the word inclusive excellence. So it's gotta become part of the definition. In your non-linear trajectory from Brooklyn to your current role, right, as President Wellesley, when you look back at this trajectory, when have been your best moments? What's been the most fun or when have you had that you feel you had significant impact? Well, you know, I would say that the most fun and significant impact together, my work at the Brigham and, and Harvard Medical School around women's health, I would say we made we made foundational change in policy at, uh, that led to changes at NIH and in different funding agencies. I would say work with the National Academies where I was on the committee that made the recommendation for including family planning in the Affordable Care Act or the work that we just completed. I co-chaired the committee that did the work for the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine that looked at sexual harassment in academic STEM, which has really led to a very significant sea change in the academy, not only in the United States, but I think it's had impact. So those are more individual contributions, but I do think the joy that I feel both when I see a class graduate that I know we've made significant changes in what they've been able to do, or when I see faculty who are making very significant contributions that really can be world-changing. Those are very, very proud moments. Looking at the future, what keeps you up at night? What are you worried about? And what are you optimistic about? So, you know, I I would say in this moment in time, I am very worried about, and and it does keep me up, the news of the um, Omicron variant and where we're going with this pandemic, it is a tremendous worry to me. And mainly because it is so clear 
that we will not be safe until the world is safe. And we have not yet embraced that level of understanding and inclusion in how we deal with a global pandemic. We get lulled into thinking that because we've reached X, Y, or Z vaccination rate, and we won't even talk about some of the issues there, which are profound, but in the United States itself, but we yet have not embraced, we're here talking about maybe we can get the world vaccinated in the next several years. That is not good enough. And we have the tools to do better. And so it really worries me that that we have not had the will to really understand and grasp our responsibility to the rest of the world. And I also am deeply worried about the status of women in our country and quite frankly, around the world. This pandemic has had a devastating impact on women and I'm not gonna repeat all the statistics because I know that you know them, but we have got to find a way to leapfrog in front of this devastating impact on all women. And lastly, the mental health of our young people really worries me. We have not made the investment here that we need to make. The number of convenings I've been to with um, college and university presidents on this issue, I won't even begin to count. But we know that this is an issue that is starting younger and younger, uh, sometimes in K through eight, and we are now seeing it in the workplace. So we've had convenings actually with industry to discuss these issues. The problem is that we are dealing with a, a conglomeration of issues that we end up conflating. And we've not really made as a country the investment to understand the roots of the problem and to understand evidence-based strategies for prevention. Again, we have the ability, we have not, we just have not made the investment. And this is the investment in our young people. This is the investment in that next generation. And if we don't do it, I think we're gonna pay dearly. And then lastly, just optimism. What, what am I optimistic about? I'm optimistic about young people. I'm worried about them, but I'm also optimistic. And I, what I see are young people who they're engaged. They take their activism seriously on behalf of any number of issues. And they are really focused on the future of our planet, the, the, uh, on equity, on so many issues. And, you know, in the day-to-day, the way that we experience it on a college campus or university campus can be quite intense. But here's what I always say. Usually they make us better. On average, they make us better because we pretty much agree with almost all, maybe not exactly agree, but, but we know what those big issues are. And we're on the road to addressing them. We are on that path. When I say we, I mean those of us in leadership. But what they do is they really test us around how fast we can get there. And they test our timeline. And frequently, they change it. And I think that's a really good thing and something that we have to acknowledge and thank them for. So um, I'm really bullish on young people. And, you know, as a college president, I'm in the young people business. So it's been, uh, it's great. We'd like to close with some rapid fire questions, as we do in every podcast. So off the top of your head, here we go. What are you currently reading, watching, or listening to? 
Oh my goodness. Um, okay, reading. Let's start with reading. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always reading several things at once and there's never enough time in the day. I do believe in getting sleep, by the way. <laughs> it, is, it is sleep is critically important and we shouldn't uh, sleep and exercise are both uh, critically important. And um, I believe in both and, and, and supporting everyone doing both. But I would say for books, I'm reading, I've started the love songs of W.E.B. Du Bois and by Honoré Jeffers. And it is a phenomenal book. I'm not a huge fiction reader, but it is beautifully, beautifully written and just worthwhile picking up. And I am a big uh, biography lover. So I just finished The Codebreaker uh, by Walter Isaacson. So that's the story of Jennifer Doudna and, um, and Chris Bird. But, but I've just started uh, The Chancellor. So it's really the, the story of Angela Merkel. And that is by uh, Katie Martin. And that is also, I think, going to be uh, outstanding. She's an amazing leader. And I'm always interested in understanding how great leaders, where did they begin? What was their trajectory? And, and she's another one who uh, I admire tremendously. And then I do keep um, Lucille Clifton at, at my bedside, which is just poetry, a black woman who has written in a way that I think is really profound in terms of the way she distills language and, mm-hmm. and thinks about the black experience, particularly the experience of black women. So those are the, the three things I'm reading. Watching, I will say I needed to watch something uh, light. I've done a lot of heavy watching of a lot of different things. But uh, right now, I'm just enjoying Ted Lasso. <laughs> I'm just having fun. I'm just having fun. And, you know, we all need to be more like goldfish. So that's, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I even a friend of mine gave me the recipe for uh, for his biscuits. Oh, you do have that. I, I, I will share it with you. I will absolutely share it with you. And Love you can that. buy the pink boxes if you'd like to give them as gifts. <laughs> that's terrific. <laughs> that's, that's great. And a cause that you're passionate about. I think it's been pretty clear from what we've been talking about that it's uh, women's health. And I think particularly uh, the health of women of color and black women has been a a real passion of mine that carries through here to my focus at at Wellesley uh, and beyond. And I shared with you, you know, obviously my work at, at the Boston Public Health Commission, my work in academic medicine, my work with the National Academies on several levels uh, and thinking about the policy changes that need to be made and um, and how do we support on the ground the health and well-being of women in our environments and how do we create models and evidence and that's one of the things that's missing is the evidence how do we actually create the evidence so that um, we actually can prove what we're doing is is working so it's been a long uh, a long time passion what's your favorite spot in our city i would say the gardner museum I've been on the board and it's uh, it's just such a special spot. And, and then, you know, of course, the through line here is Isabella herself, right? A powerful, independent woman who collected art, really convened with, you know, some of the, you know, most amazing artists and scholars and musicians of the time, John Singer Sargent, et cetera, and created what is really a, an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary place that, uh, that does speak to me. And outside of Ted Lasso, what makes you laugh? Oh my goodness. What makes me laugh? 
Well, you know, laughter is really important for your health. <laughs> and I just say it is really important. And so we, we do have to, and I'll just begin by saying, we have to be able to laugh at ourselves mm-hmm. sometimes. And if we take ourselves too seriously, then we are in trouble. And so I would just have to say, you know, myself at, at certain points and, and having some levity in life is, is so important in our leadership roles. But I think generally as a life lesson, it's critical. And finally, a wish for Boston. You know, we are on an important journey in Boston. And I think I have been here since I came to college. I was 16. I came to college in 1976 and never thought that I'd still be here. But here I am. And I love the city. And I look at the change that has happened. I when I first came, right, I lived through the Mel King run for mayor and to see where we didn't go in our city, to see who has a lock on leadership in our city, to see where we are today with Michelle Wu as our mayor. And I do want to put in a plug that her campaign manager is a Wellesley alumna. Nice. Hi, Ferguson, class of 16. Um, But um, to see Michelle Wu, to see the four women of color who were running, to see that our two finalists were women of color. This is a sea change in Boston to look at our city council. Right. I mean, I remember when, you know, when Ayanna Presley was was elected and to to see some of this change is really extraordinary. And my wish for Boston is that we continue and accelerate the trajectory. We don't have another 30 years to wait. We are on it. Let's embrace it. Let's embrace that change. And let's continue to aggressively move forward. Let's really think about the amazing talent we have in our city from on, on all levels, from our community colleges all the way to the most selective universities. Let's really think about how we amass this talent to move the city forward and really think about the diversity of leadership and the voices we need at the table. Great words, Paula, and so true. Uh, We're at such a a tipping point and really to keep those engines moving forward. And we're fortunate really to have women like you in leadership positions who will be part of that change. So we, we really appreciate that and appreciate everything you've shared today. Paula, thank you so much for joining us. We really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, John. Thank you, Carol. And it was great to be with you both. Thank you so much. I'm John Bernstein. I'm Carolyn Jones, and this is C-Speak, the language of executives. In this episode, we spoke with Paula Johnson, president of Wellesley College. Until next time. You've been listening to PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. This podcast and other engaging episodes can be found at bizjournals.com slash Boston. Search PNC. Subscribe at the Boston Business Journal, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Come back soon and join us for another PNC C-Speak.